there is no such thing as a free lunch. Terry Shellington, Chris, thank you very much for your presentation and the facts you gave. I don't know if you can reproduce that slide you showed near the beginning of the, the various provinces and uh, the percentage, I think it was, of their borrowing uh, to GDP. Because uh, I had a question about that. That slide was dated uh, 19, 20, uh, 50, 60. Maybe I'll uh, put forth my question while you're searching the deep recesses of the computer. Go ahead with your question, sir. Um, I wasn't sure I had his attention. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the question is, so that was dated 2015-16, and in the meantime, of course, the uh, province of Alberta has uh, uh, much higher indebtedness than it had in, uh, in 2015. And my question was, uh, in, in an approximate sort of way, how would Alberta compare to the other provinces given the spending of the last couple of years? Yeah. That was uh, very, very, very vivid on the slide that uh, I'll bring it to the bottom. Bring that up. Um. Yeah, so, so I think this is the slide you're, you're referring to. So um, the, uh, the, these, this is the, the latest uh, data that uh, I had available for, for, for this uh, for the moment, I guess uh, th this one, this slide shows you how Alberta's uh, debt is, is increasing, right, in terms of uh, percentage of uh, as a percentage of uh, the uh, the the level of debt in Saskatchewan has, has stayed uh, more or less the same as uh, as it would have been in uh, in, in that previous uh, slide from the 2015-16 budget. That, the effort is to try to keep the uh, to, to keep the deficit at a fairly low level. I think about three hundred million dollars is, is the projected deficit in, this, in Saskatchewan for the uh, for the coming fiscal year. So that will add something to the debt, but certainly uh, the um, as a percentage of, of spending, the the spending in Alberta is uh, in in terms of the proportion. That the deficit is of total spending is is, in, is increasing quite rapidly. So we we'll be seeing that uh, we're moving up into uh, you know, some of these neighborhoods, which uh, which are seen in some of the other jurisdictions. So uh, we you see higher than BC, for example. At, at this point, uh, the the BC number is 17 percent. They were they were on a surplus last year, so their their uh, deficit. De Debt to GDP ratio is probably a little bit lower than this slide has, in which case, uh, according to uh, the projections in in, uh, in Alberta, then you know by by 2018-19 we're going to be looking at 17% based on current projections of spending. So we're going to be passing BC fairly soon at current trends. Yeah. Hi, my name is Scoot Peterson. Uh, thanks very much for coming today, Chris. This is the Really a hot topic, I think, these days. Um, I'm now wondering about the uh, dirty word, carbon tax. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that's a perfectly 
good capitalistic way of dealing with the climate change. Uh, can you give us your thoughts on, uh, on the carbon tax or carbon levy or whatever you want to sure. call it? Yeah. How that plays into our, our future? Yeah, well, well, thanks, Knut, yeah, and thanks for the invitation to, to speak. It's, uh, it's not often as an economist you get a chance to talk to a room full of people. <laughs> and my element here. Um, the carbon tax, uh, or the carbon levy, I guess the the amount of revenue being generated by that at this point is fairly is, is, is fairly low. Uh, of the order of uh, just over a billion dollars for the full year in a 17-18 uh, uh, cycle. So in the context of overall revenue generation, uh, I guess we're looking at 45 billion in revenues, so it's a, it's a billion of that. Uh, the notion of, of having such a thing, um, if you believe that, that um, there are issues associated with burning fossil fuels which are affecting the environment and you want to get people to stop doing that to that extent, certainly uh, a carbon levy is an appropriate tool to do that with, and a number of jurisdictions are are doing that. Uh, basically, you're increasing the price of earning carbon uh, products, and so uh, if uh, if any any time when you're uh, forcing the price for something up, then you're going to tend to see people uh, find alternative ways of, of doing the same kind of activity at uh, with different techniques or at different costs. So, uh, from that point of view, it's certainly a legitimate. Uh, public policy tool to try to achieve that. And uh, I, I guess the question is, um, uh, to what extent do you want to see revenue being generated by, by that? Because, of course, at the end of the day, uh, it will embed itself um, in the cost of many other things, because uh, lots of uh, economic activity is dependent on energy for, uh, for propagating it. So you'll see uh, other prices will be affected by virtue of increased prices for energy, so there will be a general trend upwards. And, you know, at a certain level, you could say, well, you know, that's generating additional revenue, it's getting away from some perhaps negatively viewed economic activity, so it's overall, it's a good thing, because not only are you getting a benefit from the environmental perspective, you're also generating some additional revenue, which you can use um, to finance various operations. I, I guess a lot of the levy in this budget proposal uh, is being used to uh, provide for rebates of various sorts and for various other programs. And so not all of that $1 billion is ending up uh, as total revenue net to the government. Uh, some of it is ending up going as uh, payouts just in the same way as the GST rebate goes to low-income people and uh, other programs around trying to get people to find uh, more um, efficient ways of, of using energy. So uh, probably about half of, of the levy is going to end up being recycled back to uh, other programs. Uh, I think the government has been fairly um, conservative at this point over the extent to which it's introduced that. I mean, uh, it, it's got a particular objective it wants to achieve in terms of the impact that would have on emissions, but certainly uh, it is a potential source of revenue and one which has some positive benefits in other ways. So it's, it's not a totally bad idea from an economic point of view. If you want to, if you want to mitigate that kind of activity, increasing the price of that activity will make people curb their, uh, curb their behavior to an extent. So it, it certainly is, is doing that uh, and, and will, uh, will do that. On the other hand, 
there are some negative aspects, as I said, where the cost of that gets embedded in other other, other activities, uh, the cost of production of various other goods, which may be important to people, and maybe that's a high portion of an individual of what an individual is spending their income on. And so one needs to be rather careful about uh, the products which are impacted the most by those increases, because um, you know those products they might form a high portion of spending for certain groups in the economy, and one need, would need to be quite careful about that. But uh, in principle, it's, it's, it's not a bad idea. Uh, like I said, I think they could have gone further. Uh, maybe they will in the future. Certainly, it's, a, it's maybe a, a sort of a, a backwards way of introducing a, a sales tax of a different kind. <laughs> but maybe one that's more palatable. Hi, Chris. Yeah. Bell, Bell Hi, how are you? Good. <clears throat> Thank you for deconstructing the neoliberal agenda. Um, just in regard to your last comments about the, the carbon tax, uh, certainly the carbon tax on gasoline has become minuscule now in the past few days with the increase in the price of gasoline and the pumps going up by almost 20 cents. So uh, in some cases, it's it's nothing. Okay, so my uh, my comment was um, our previous Alberta government did exactly those neoliberal cuts, um, cutting at one point all kinds of nurses, and then the nurses had to bump each other. They were cutting in, in medicine and in health. And they also cut in education, um, cutting back on the number of kids per cutting back on the number of teachers per classroom and even going against their own their own numbers. They wanted to reduce the numbers of kids per teacher, but then they ended up doubling them. And um, when when provinces or countries do this, these neoliberal cuts, it's um, it's kind of like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Because when you're cutting in education, a year in the life of a child cannot be replaced whether it's in K through 12 or even university. So in today's paper, there was an article debunking the whole neoliberal cuts, you know, this, this whole thing, economics. And I'm just wondering, why is that still alive and well? Why do, we, why do provinces, why do countries, why do particular political agendas still think that cuts will help anything when you made such an articulate and compelling argument for borrowing just as we would do to increase our mortgage or to put our kids through school. Why, why do governments still do this when it is clearly um, debunked? Yeah, thanks for the question. Well, I think uh, some of this is certainly ideologically driven. There, there are segments in society where the view is that uh, government should be as small as possible and people should uh, have as much of their earned income available to them to dispose of as they see fit. And so that's one of the drivers behind uh, why one sees, in particular, uh, governments coming in and, and making cuts, even when there might not be any compelling reason to do that purely to the point of where the economy is in the, in the, in the economic cycle. So uh, at, at the same time, I mean, the, the idea, ideological aspects, I think, go, go both ways. Because uh, on, on the one hand, 
from the conservative perspective of, you know, and I mean conservative from the perspective of, of budgets and financing things, you uh, uh, have the argument as well, we should make government smaller because uh, uh, people are more efficient at doing things if they do them by themselves and the market will take care of all of that. Uh, on the other hand, you've got the issue that uh, when the economy is in tough times like we are right now, uh, and there's lots of people unemployed, uh, in order to uh, bring that back, you're actually going to make it worse with certain of these sorts of policies. On the other hand, too, though, uh, from the point of view of um, programming and having concerns over what money gets uh, spent on and why you should spend or shouldn't spend uh, funds, um, one of the drivers behind uh, the way in which uh, progressive tax systems are promoted is to say, well, we should have a progressive uh, tax system because it should be fair. Uh, people at the top end should pay more because uh, uh, because they can afford to pay more. But they're already paying more by virtue of the fact that they're paying uh, the same percentage as the higher dollar value. Uh, the argument is that, well, uh, we should try, try to uh, redistribute income towards, uh, towards those uh, groups who have relatively lower income. And we should use the tax system as a vehicle to do that. And uh, one of the arguments behind having a more equal distribution of income is that uh, it would make the economy grow at a faster rate. There's, this, there's research on that which, uh, which suggests that uh, you, you do get higher, higher growth rates with uh, a more even distribution of income. But uh, what's also found is that uh, the tax system uh, in redistributing income around isn't the best way to achieve that uh, more even distribution of income. It actually makes more sense to uh, fund entitlement programs where you give money directly to people who then go and spend that money and it generates additional economic activity. So rather than changing uh, the tax system to one that's more progressive to try to achieve the uh, equality in distribution of income, it makes more sense to uh, have spending programs which are targeted to uh, relatively lower income people, give them the money in their hands because all that money at the end of the day ends up getting spent because their propensity to spend on, uh, on the stuff that drives the economy is a lot higher than if you leave that money, if you leave those funds with someone on a relatively higher income, they're going to spend a, a smaller proportion on, on those things. And so uh, the more people that you uh, provide that spending power to, the better. And uh, the best way of doing that, if you want to achieve this uh, increased uh, dis uh, or improved distribution of income and make it more even, then it makes more sense to do it through this other vehicle rather than through a progressive tax system necessarily, and there's a fair bit of research on that. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I think these come down to uh, what people believe and how they, how they want to see them, themselves live their lives. And uh, uh, all I try to do is you know, kind of point out, well, there are some options, there are some choices here, and uh, some of these choices uh, are not necessarily always inherently bad. I think we've been educated in Alberta to believe that, that debt is a really bad thing and we should we should uh, at all costs not have any. And uh, uh, I think, if, like I've said today, if you look around the world, if you look around Canada, lots of governments are running deficits, lots of governments are in debt. The question is, uh, run that debt at a reasonable level. Don't uh, use that debt to just basically spend on current consumption. There might be a short period of time where you might do a little bit of that because uh, you're not well positioned. Like I think, I think we're not that well positioned in Alberta right now to uh, finance 
the levels of spending we would have with the revenue streams that we're using. I think there are other revenue streams that we're not using, such as, as I said, um, uh, consumption taxes, uh, <coughs> efficient ways of, of raising funds, and there's ways of dealing with uh, low-income people who may be affected by that. Uh, I think we could go further in the direction of uh, uh, mitigation programs of that kind, such as the GST rebate system. Those rebates could be bigger. You know, they, they maybe don't change very often uh, uh, to, to reflect the fact that cost of living is going up. So there are some other there are some other ways of uh, going about business, and I think that uh, there there's no one solution in, in any. Uh, uh, you know, across the piece for, for all time. It'll depend a lot on where your economy is in the economic cycle, where other economies are relative to that, and um, what some of your long-term objectives are. I think some of our long-term objectives uh, are to diversify the economy, is what's uh, always talked about, but when the price of oil comes back, we seem to kind of forget about that. I think, you know, the resources will always be there. Uh, we have them available to us. We should try to live on, uh, you know, current revenue streams as opposed to using all the capital to, to uh, finance current consumption. Sorry to run on this for so long. I hope I answered some of your, your questions. Uh, my name is Ben Christou. Uh, thank you very much, Chris, for being with us today and presenting to doing such an amazingly informative presentation. Um, I'd like to uh, focus for a moment on my question on the matter of the economics uh, involved in this refugee problem that's facing us. Um, as we all know, uh, there's a developing resistance to bringing refugees into countries all around the world, uh, in Europe and beyond. Um, and, uh, and I'm wondering about the economic implications of that. Um, to bring in refugees, of course, it's going to it's going to give us it's going to build on to on the positive side. It's going to give us workers in, in areas where local people will take jobs and so on. On the negative side, uh, it's going to certainly cost us more in our medical treatment. It's going to cost us a lot more in in our educational area. Uh, has there been any definitive research done on what the economic implications are? Uh, in bringing refugees into Canada. Uh, thanks for the question, Dan. Uh, the uh, the work on on that uh, generally tends to show that um, immigrants to to the country have actually been a net gain overall. And so, sure, you can always you can always come up with cases where uh, there are some individuals where they're relying on the social safety net, relying on social programs until they position themselves so they come. More productive. But at the same time, you've got many immigrants who almost right away become highly productive members of the economy. I'm an immigrant myself. <laughs> I, I think I've done a reasonable job making sure that I agree on society. I hope so, anyways. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, that the, the evidence certainly shows that uh, overall, uh, and the, the refugee uh, the refugee program is is is, is simply. Just a part of the uh, of the immigration program as a whole. Uh, we're going to accept so so many uh, such and such a proportion of uh, immigrants as refugees, um, and, and sometimes we'll go further than that if, if there's a humanitarian need for that. And in general, over the course of time, uh, it's been shown with uh, some of the research has been done that uh, the immigrants uh, as a whole are, are an end game 
uh, to uh, to Canada and it, it has positioned Canada where, where it is today. So there are certainly obviously other issues related to uh, bringing um, bringing in immigrants into the country. Uh, security issues are obviously the ones that are very prominent at the moment given a lot of things that are going on. But uh, I, I think uh, there's lots of uh, steps being taken to ensure that uh, uh, any risks associated with that are, are mitigated. There, there will always be risks uh, associated with, with that activity. There will be risks associated with almost any activity you think of. Uh, the question is, can you manage the risk? And I think we're doing that. And plus, the, the, the net gains that we get as a society from having uh, immigrants come and refugees as well is, uh, is, is a boon to, to the country. Okay, next question. Uh, my name is Carol Sakia. Um, I was wondering if you were referring to what I would call a guaranteed annual income system where everybody gets a certain amount. Um, with the, what you were saying about a progressive tax system. Well, the, the guaranteed uh, income support system, that would be more like an entitlement program, right? That, which I was uh, to some extent advocating in favor of a progressive tax system as a way of distributing income. So uh, certainly there are different ways in which you could come up with a program which would, uh, which would provide income support. Uh, well, I wasn't thinking of an entitlement program per se. I was just thinking of a, uh, you know, every Albertan of a certain age gets a certain income, and those of us that may have jobs on top of that um, would pay a, a different tax back in the end. Whereas if you only lived on your guaranteed income, um, well, probably 100% of that is going into the local economy. Um, I'm thinking of a system where everybody gets a basic income. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, that, it's fairly far removed from programs we have in place right now, and you know, it's. Uh, I, I guess there are incentive issues associated with that that certain folks don't like. So, if you're going to get a guaranteed amount of money, what are the incentives to um, increase your productivity, enhance your human capital, things of that sort? I mean, I'm an economist, so. I, I'm all about incentives. You know, if, if you uh, if you give people the right kind of incentives, they'll behave in a certain way. If you if you give them other kinds of incentives, they'll be, perhaps behave in ways that you're not too thrilled about. So uh, I think one has to be careful with any policy one introduces that you don't uh, end up with some unintended consequences. Because uh, you know, as I was talking about in the context of uh, uh, the distribution of income. Yeah, you can move towards a more uh, progressive uh, system of, of taxation where people uh, at higher income levels pay higher rates of, of tax. Uh, and I've argued against doing that systematically because it's not necessarily a magic bullet for distributing income. And so uh, the, um, the other aspect of, of, of that is that um, Um, yeah, so maybe I'll take the next question. There's some, something that was in my mind that just... This will be the last question. Yeah. Um, Mary Shillington, thanks, Chris, for your yeah. presentation. Uh, just a point of uh, interest. If we think about ourselves, uh, every one of us were immigrants at some time. Somebody in our family was an immigrant, because the only people that aren't immigrants are the indigenous people. So. Um, 
when we think about immigrants. That's us too. Um, two questions actually that fit together. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you said what Alberta's current credit rating is. I, uh, some people at the table thought they knew, uh, so I just want to hear that. And also, what was the debt that the new government took over when, when the NDP government came into power here? Because that, the debt has been running for a while. And as people at our tables were just aghast at how little we have in our, in our fund that, from the oil industry, uh, from our royalties as, as compared to Norway. And, uh, and so that all fits together, those, those two, two questions. Yeah, well, um, the, the credit rating has been uh, has been downgraded uh, last year. I, I, there are different rating agencies uh, associated with that, so I, I, I'm not uh, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips on that. So the bottom line there, though, is that that will mean it's more <laughs> costly to borrow uh, because uh, interest rates uh, are predicated on, on what the uh, Credit rating is what was the other the other question? Uh, the debt that uh, yeah, the debt uh, that we started with. Uh, I, I think that the number as the Conservatives left office was of the order of five to ten billion, something in that neighbourhood. Uh, and the first year of the NDP government, the, the deficit being run that year was about uh, ten billion. We're going to see another ten billion this year, so you know that's um, pushing things uh, ahead a fairly. Uh, the, the rate at which debt's increasing is is is, uh, is fairly is fairly brisk, uh, and so you know um, when this government took office, there was not much in the way of debt. There's a lot more now. On the other hand, they weren't hand a very good uh, a very, very good hand in the sense of where the economy was and uh, where resource prices were, where uh, the, the previous government talked about wanting to get off of their roller coaster of resource revenues driving the revenue stream, and were trying to do some of that by virtue of the budget that they were proposing just prior to them being defeated in the election. And so uh, that might be one of the reasons why they were defeated, although there are probably a whole host of others. But, uh, you know, uh, they, they certainly were not looking uh, overly at finding alternative revenue streams. This government uh, has said that they don't plan on having consumption tax in this round to get re-elected. Maybe that'll be part of their platform if, uh, if they want to get re-elected and uh, it'll remain to be seen whether people will go along with that. So we'll allow your wife the last question. Okay. Uh, Lorraine Nichol. Uh, just a reminder to pick up a liter of milk on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I have a little bit of an economics background too, and uh, you know the sales tax is such a sacred cow here um, in this province. The, the lack of one. The lack of one, yes. And uh, so we know, you know, significant uh, form of revenue for other provinces. Um, every economist comes out and says a provincial tax, a provincial sales tax, is a good route to go for revenue generation. Um, but yet the public, the public is, is adamantly opposed to it, at least um, from what we hear. So uh, you have talked a little bit about this, but could you expand maybe a little bit more on, from an economic point of view, why this is a, a, uh, an appropriate way to go, as opposed to the public backlash that we have in Alberta um, consistently? Yeah, so um, there are two ways 
more or less to raise uh, tax revenues. You either raise it uh, off of people's income or you raise it, raise it off of further spending. And uh, the, the, the research generally shows that it's relatively more efficient to raise your revenues through consumption taxes because there's less uh, probability, less chance of people actually being able to avoid those taxes. When they go and spend, spend when they go and buy things, mm. if everything is taxed, then you're paying tax. In the, in, uh, in the UK, for example, VAT, value-added tax, that's a consumption tax like the GST. Uh, it's, on, uh, it's on pretty much every good. And so it's not actually, uh, it's included in the sticker price. So you actually not, don't really know what you're paying. I think one of the reasons that we've got such a big aversion to taxes in Canada is because um, people who run businesses, uh, they want to distance themselves from the price of the things they're selling. And so uh, if I have to add something on, if it's somebody else's fault that I had to add that 5% on, then I, it's easier for me to say, well, you know, this is just like the cost of buying this, this thing. Uh, in, the, in the UK and in, in parts of Europe, uh, the value-added tax, the consumption tax, GST type of tax is included in the, in the sticker price you own. Uh, often know how much tax you're, you're paying in that context, which can be a good and a bad thing, I suppose. Uh, but maybe one of the reasons why we've got such an aversion to taxes, uh, consumption-type taxes here, is because uh, you can see exactly what you're paying and you balk at that. But then, you know, when you do your income taxes at the end of the year, you can, on your T4, you can see how much income tax you paid, and uh, people get annoyed about that too. But they seem to get annoyed about uh, paying the sales tax at the till in a different kind of way than when you see their T4 that they're paying $50,000 in tax. So uh, it, it's an efficient way of, of raising revenue. And uh, once the system is in place, it will, it, it's, it's, it's fairly simple uh, to administer. Income taxes, on the other hand, what happens with them is that um, governments get into the business of um, gerrymandering the system in such a way that it benefits certain groups who they want to uh, pay guilty to so they can get their votes and so forth. And so they'll structure the system in such a way that uh, it ends up not being an efficient way of raising the revenue. It ends up causing distortions in the economy where resources get misallocated and get allocated to the wrong things because uh, there are incentives being built in for people to engage in profit-seeking or rent-seeking behavior associated with the existence of these uh, tax rates. And so uh, previous governments at the federal level were quite good at that uh, by virtue of giving tax breaks on sporting equipment for kids and various other things of that sort. So really putting all sorts of uh, odd holes into the, into the uh, tax code and making a really inefficient system and really altering potentially the behavior of people. So with a consumption tax, if everybody's paying the consumption tax at the till and uh, it's, on, it's on every good, then you don't actually get any um, distortion in people's behavior. Uh, the prices of everything rise by the same amount. So for example, if you tax some goods and not other goods, the relative price of the goods will change. And so some uh, uh, changes in behavior will result from that. And that's not necessarily something that you always want because you're then uh, introducing and um, promoting uh, some behaviors that maybe are unintended consequences of what you're trying to achieve. So, uh, people will then say, well, you, you can't expect uh, low-income people to pay uh, these consumption taxes and tax everything, including food. Well, you can so long as you have other ways of 
compensating those folks for the fact that uh, they're paying this tax to the GST. You get this example of that. You have to make sure that the money you're rebating to people is enough to cover what they're actually paying in those taxes so that their overall economic well-being is affected by that change. But then you get the benefit at the top end of the distribution that everybody is, is, is spending at that rate and uh, that's generating what we need. And it's not causing people to engage in rent-seeking or other kinds of behavior to change the allocation of resources into activities that uh, aren't as um, um, as worthwhile in terms of the, the relative value of them for the client. So um, I don't know if I answered your question. But I just don't forget to go.